Welcome to the Diversity in Action podcast, presented by the BLX Internship Program. Join us as our hosts, Luis Rosa and Sean Tedlaska, interview guests from across the financial planning field to highlight the real change that's happening in our industry. If you are tired of just talking about diversity and want to learn what others are doing to make the demographics of our profession more closely match the population of this country, this podcast is for you. This episode is provided by Trust and Will. Trust and Will is the leading digital estate planning and settlement platform. They provide an easy and secure way to create estate plans and settle estates online. They're currently partnered with over 10,000 financial advisors, helping you add more value add services to your firm. Visit trustandwill.com forward slash advisors. Welcome back to the Diversity in Action podcast, season two. Episode nine. Today, we have actually a very good friend of mine. We met at the Diversity Summit put on by the CFP board back in 2019 in Washington, D.C. So I'm going to let Sean introduce him. I'm very excited about having him on the podcast. I'm going to talk all things DEI, his career path, and even a little bit about basketball. (laughs) You take it away, Sean. Thanks, Luis. Yeah, I'm thrilled to introduce Chris Woods. He is the founder of Silvis Financial, which he started in 2018. He's a CFP pro, certified exit planner, certified kingdom advisor, former college athlete, played at Vanderbilt in Nashville, Tennessee. He is currently the FPA DEI committee chair and has been on the committee since 2018. I want to get into all of your financial planning experience and what you're doing in the DEI space. But yeah, I just, when I was doing some research on the podcast, I learned about your basketball history and just wanted to ask a quick question. I understand that you guarded Shaquille O'Neal and you and your team helped to hold them to his lowest point total for the whole season. Tell me a little bit about what, what that was like. Yeah, no, thank you. And first of all, thanks for having me on the podcast. So happy to be here. And yes, that experience was really surreal. I remember very well, I was a freshman when I played against Shaq. My senior year of high school, I came on a trip after I'd already signed to play at Vanderbilt to watch Shaq play Vandy then. And I remember thinking, man, that guy's huge. You know, just seeing him in person, it, it's next level stuff. And by the way, for those listening, Chris is 6'10". So for him to say that Shaq is huge, I mean, you could only imagine. <laughs> That's right. So yeah, I'm 6'10". And I remember walking on the floor in my senior year of high school thinking, that guy's a monster. So I'm glad he won't be coming back next year, right? Thinking he was going to go pro. And then lo and behold, I read in the media that he's coming back for one more year at LSU not what I wanted to hear. And so, but I'll say, I remember that game very well leading up to it. In the media, Shaq was telling the media that he had not yet had a 50-point game that season. This is the night before the Vandy game. He said he wanted to do it against Vandy. So not what I want to hear either, right? As I knew the guy, I'm going to be trying to guard him. But we had a great week of practice preparing for LSU and for Shaq. And with Shaq, it's truly a team effort to stop that guy. And it's not, there wasn't any one person in college basketball and very few in the NBA, a single person who can stop him. And so we had a great game plan together. Just tried to keep him out of the lane most of the game. I was trying to avoid getting dunked on most of the game and just trying to, on offense, you know, be a decoy if I could in some ways to, free up some of the guys. And I'll say the plan worked perfectional. We caught him. We double teamed him a good chunk of the game when he caught the ball. I was able to keep him outside to paint from catching in the lane and dunking on me and others. And 
And as it turned out, LSU was ranked 20th at the time in the country. And yes, we won the game and definitive we held Shaq to 10 points, which is his lowest point total that season. Also, no dunks that game. So I was proud of that. That's fact, too, that Shaq didn't get wow. any dunks that game. You know, one lasting memory of that game, though, was about midway through the second half, we both went up for a rebound. Of course, he got it, not me. But he came down and swung his elbow. I think he get annoyed at that point in the game. Swung his elbow, caught me in the mouth. And it actually kind of shattered a couple of my bottom teeth. And then, like, my top incisor was, like, kicked back at a 45-degree angle. There's blood. Whoa. Like, no foul called, of course. And so I go back to the bench, spit out my two chips, get back in the game. Didn't think too much of it until about it's 10 years later, at least five, 10 years after that, I was sitting in my dentist's chair looking at x-rays. And the dentist asked me, she said, Chris, have you had any trauma? impact this top incisor in the last 10 years or so. I'm like, well, actually, I have actually Shaq's elbow, you know, <laughs> kind of hit it. And she's like, well, that trauma killed the nerve in your tooth and you have to get it extracted. So I have an implant from one of my incisors that's all from Shaq's elbow. So that is a true story. <laughs> so it's still there. So that's the lasting memory from playing against him. But yeah, no, like I said, at that time, I was, Louis mentioned I was 6'10", but only weighing about 230, 235 pounds. And Shaq in the program was 71303, but I think he was a biscuit shy at 320. That guy was just huge. But like I said, great experience for me and for the team and a memory that I'll certainly have for a while. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, I remember seeing him in person once in Las Vegas, and he's just a massive human being. Yeah. He's massive. Well, I'll tell you one other thing, though, too, about his massive as he is. He didn't get credit for what a great athlete he was at his size. I mean, I know he had that show on ABC, I think, called Shaq Versus at one point, which yeah. is kind of cool to watch that. But I'll say that even in college, for as big as he was, I mean, he was a great athlete. He can run. He could jump. He was coordinated. He was skilled. And so that was something else that was hard to contend with. Sometimes guys that big, you know, just aren't that coordinated or aren't that great of an athlete, but he was all of that at his size. And so that was something else that much more of a challenge to try to guard him. Awesome. Well, so from basketball, why don't you tell us a little bit about your career arc and your pathway into the profession and a little bit about how you got to where you are today? Sure. You know, it's one of those things for me where I knew early on I wanted to be in this field. You know, I majored in economics in college. I knew that I wanted to be, at that time, it was a stock broker. It was a terminology we were using back then. And that's what I wanted to do. And I was pretty certain of that. And so I started with a smaller brokerage firm out of Nashville for a little bit in operations. I remember talking to someone who was kind of a mentor to me at the time about it. And I asked him, I said, what should I do? prepare myself for work and financial services as a broker. And he just mentioned to me getting some sales experience. He said that was most, one of the most important things I could do for myself at that time. And so after I left there for a couple of years, sold some copiers, which is, by the way, ridiculously hard sales to do. But I learned a lot doing it. And that's when I had my first real planning gig was with American Express Financial Advisors. When I came into that, I was living in Atlanta at the time and working in there. And that was the pretty typical arrangement in terms of how you get started. You know, bring your list of 200 people who you know and 
start to call on them immediately, right? And I'll just say that it was a challenge and even frustrating for me at times, just because, you know, I didn't have the Rolodex that some of my colleagues had at that time. So we'd sit in some of our weekly sales meetings. I see people bringing in these million dollar people in their first few weeks of being in our training program. And I'm just thinking, where are you getting these people from? You know, there's a couple of other young people in the program as well. I was a young kid in the program. And for some of them, it was, you know, their parents, friends, a few of them, one guy I'm thinking about in particular has his parents were members of a country club. And so just their, their friends at the club are coming to him. And I'm just watching everyone post these crazy numbers each week. I'm just thinking, man, this guy's like younger than me. He's like 22, 23. He's got all this money coming in. He's killing me. These six and seven figure new clients coming in. I'm like, what is going on? You know, and so I just didn't have that. And I'm watching, and I'll say it was deflating because I was pretty sure that's what I wanted to do. And now that I'm out there doing it, I wasn't successful. It burned me up because honestly, it wasn't in my family. I didn't have my network of friends to go out and call on to bring in that kind of the money that I was going to need to sustain myself and create a living doing that. And so I'll tell you, after about six months of that, as it turned out, I had someone, <laughs> there was another semi-pro basketball league that was starting up. And someone had called me up about playing it. They're starting a team in my hometown. And I thought, that sounds like a much better gig than this. You know, for what I was doing, I decided at that time to leave. And I'll tell you, you know, even though as much as I love playing basketball, I would have been fun. If I were successful, that would have been a tougher decision for me. But at the time, I just wasn't bringing in the revenue I needed. And a lot of that time, you know, turned me on to the importance of diversity in the industry a little bit there. Because, again, there weren't that many Black financial advisors in the industry at that time. And I even remember talking to a few other more senior planners, other black planners in Atlanta at the time. And keep in mind, this is the, the late nineties. And they told me, they said, Chris, you know, some of the people you're going to try to call on, who are going to be in their fifties or sixties or older who are white, just aren't going to work with a black plan. And you start doing the math on that with the age and the timing and, where we were at that time, it makes complete sense. I understood it because at first I thought, oh, no, no, hey, I can work with anybody. <laughs> Chris, it's not you. <laughs> you know, There'll be people who, especially in the South, who aren't going to want to work with a Black planner. Like I said, for me, I just thinking about the fact that, you know, we're at that time, you know, 20 years, 25 to 30 years removed from the civil rights movement, you know, you, you begin to see that, okay, yes, I get that. And so with all those things in play, I decided to leave the profession at that time. I had this tryout for a semi-pro basketball team. Unfortunately, it didn't work out. And mostly because I tore my hamstring on the third day of camp. That's a whole nother story right there. Wow. But I think that was uh, God telling me that my basketball days were probably over. From there, I went on. Instead of going back to trying to be an advisor at that time, I went on to be a wholesaler. I wholesaled mostly alternative investments for over 15 years doing that. 
before I came back to the retail side as a planner. And I think that after wholesaling for all this time and really kind of seeing different ways to be successful in a business, that's when I learned about, you know, the CFP and planning and just, you know, how you can build a business from financial planning. And you didn't just have to be a wealth manager of going out there and to go trying to do nothing but gather assets. You could actually go on and build a book of business from charging planning fees. And that was a game changer for me, just being able to market to more people in my natural market instead of having to just go out there and identify large accounts to bring over. So that was some of the arc of kind of how it all transpired to from then to now with uh, certainly plenty, many twists and turns along the way. But all those have certainly shaped me to where I am today as well. So I wouldn't trade them, even though they're very tough experiences for a lot of them. I wouldn't trade them just given what it's taught me about this business and how to be successful in it. Yeah, thank you for sharing that very much, Chris. You know, it is amazing to me that to hear you say that story about writing down the list of names, like that is still happening in 2023. I was just talking to one of our interns who successfully finished her internship at one of the firms during the summer. And the firm's looking to keep her on. So she was just sharing how excited she was. And she said, she's a career changer. She was saying, I've struggled to get into this industry and told me the same exact thing. You told me, you know, when my nephew did his internship was a hundred names, I guess it's, <laughs> some people do 200. And I was just like, wow. And you know, you bring up an amazing point that people sometimes just don't have that network. There was no way. I mean, I didn't even have 200 people at my wedding, right? But there's no way that <laughs> the net worth, there's no way. I was not going to be one of those guys bringing in the seven-figure clients either. So I could see why you left, you know, and that is a very sad truth because I feel like a lot of people come into the industry through that route and then end up leaving and never coming back again just because they're just not built for it and you're set up to fail from the beginning. Great point. And I think you're right. It does still happen. And that's where a lot of people drop out in the pipeline. You know, sometimes people might get into a program like that, a training program. A lot of the training programs that pay a salary, that's the model or some version of it, right? It is bringing in new clients, bringing in assets to stick around. And a lot of people aren't able to sustain themselves in that model. And so you're right. I mean, I think for especially a lot of people of color in particular, you're not going to necessarily have the Rolodex that's needed to be able to bring in enough business to sustain yourself. Yeah, I actually interviewed at American Express. I went to school at UCLA and graduated in 2004. I made it to the part where you do the phone call simulation with a hypothetical prospect and I failed. I didn't stick to the script enough, I guess, or I don't know. That's probably a blessing in disguise because I didn't have a Rolodex like that either to have that sales pressure and kind of either hit these numbers or you're out. There was a Cerulean study that just came out that said 70% of rookie advisors fail their first year. And it's not surprising given that a lot of the jobs still are commission-based. Study also said that 70% of those jobs are production-based. You don't really have any like kind of baseline floor of income on what you produce, which is why we initially have partnered with fee-only firms for our interns, they get paid an hourly rate of at least $20 an hour. And we just recently opened it up to fee-based and hybrid firms as well that are focused on financial planning to provide more opportunities for our interns. But I'm sure that must have been really hard because this is the industry that you want to be in. 
you've been successful your whole life, you know, with, with, with basketball and school and to fail out in six months must have been really hard. Could you just talk a little bit about what wholesaling is? I don't know if everyone knows what that means. Sure. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Yeah, I was basically in sales for a couple of alternative investment companies where we created and packaged products for sale through the broker dealer community. So I called on financial advisors myself to get them to sell our products to their clients. I'll say that this is another great career field for someone who wants to be in financial services who you know, maybe an advisor path isn't the best one for someone. That actually is a great field for someone who wants to consider that. I would certainly hold that field out there as something for people to consider if financial services or being a financial planner isn't their best path. Because for me, it was great. I mean, especially the time I did this, I was in my mid-20s. And this is before I was married and with kids. So I traveled a lot in the territory that I covered. So a lot of conferences a lot of events, but I enjoyed that. You know, I enjoyed the travel. I enjoyed the evenings out and the events and the dinners and the seminars. And it was a nice way to make a living for a little while. Something that people should consider. I will go on to say that, you know, in my career doing that, I covered two different areas of the country. For the first, I'll say two thirds of my wholesaling career, I was in the upper Midwest. And in my last third, I was in the mid-Atlantic. But in the upper Midwest is when I also had seen, yes, this is not a very diverse community. I would go to conferences where you might have, you know, I was calling on mostly smaller independent broker dealers, a lot of them based in the Midwest, where you might have anywhere from 250 to 500 to 1,000 advisors. And a lot of times there's some I didn't see a single black advisor. Sometimes I might see one. And so once you took the entire community of advisors and wholesalers, I might be in a room with 1,500 people and literally be the only Black person in the room. That happened on a lot of occasions. And so, you know, my eyes were beginning to open, certainly during that time as a wholesaler, to the need for more diversity in the profession. It was very clear as a wholesaler at that time, seeing it firsthand, not only in the conferences, but again, I would call on advice an entire region. And I had an idea of what the numbers looked like back then. So I think we're seeing slight improvement now, but still, as we all know, a ways to go. Definitely. Long, long ways to go. Can you talk about a little bit kind of your next steps from there? And I was reading on your website that you felt that starting your own firm was the only way to completely authentically walk the way that you felt that God was leading you. Can you tell us like transition and why you felt like you had to start your own firm to serve where you wanted to? Sure. Yeah, there's probably a few things involved with that. When I came back, my first career back on the retail side of the desk, financial services, I actually came back to Ameriprise again for a little bit and went from Ameriprise, then I was with LPL for a little while. And both confirm. I think that what you realize a lot of times is when you start to see some of their different payout grids and the way that they're handling, the way that they're doing things and, and how you're incented to do certain things, I realized that I wanted to do it differently. For one, I didn't want to have any minimums on people who I was bringing on as clients, right? So I didn't want to have to worry about any asset minimums there. So it's one of the reasons for the change. 
you mentioned a little bit about kind of my faith was a factor to some degree as well, just being able to, you know, if I wanted to talk about God or pray with people, never having been concerned or ashamed of that at all. So I do that in my own business as well. But I think the primary reason was just the ability to bring on who I wanted to bring on, not have to worry about a certain level of assets for them to come work with me. I could charge them what was appropriate so I can take on a client with a lower planning fee if I wanted to do it. I can meet people where they were. And that was something that as a firm owner, I had the ability to do is just please meet people where they were. You know, some people who the full financial plan was not right. So we'll go to an hourly model. We'll do a more of a project-based arrangement for them so they can get the help that they need. And that was just something that I wasn't able to really do that, have that flexibility with a large firm. And so that was important to be able to serve who I wanted to be able to serve. And, you know, my models evolved some over time, like everyone's does. But at core, you know, I still have that flexibility by figure out what's the best way I want to serve one of my clients. And being a firm owner, a firm owner, you have the ability to do that. Yeah, definitely resonates with me too. I worked for the broker dealer world for about 15 years and then went to a few other RIAs after that. But ultimately, yeah, I wasn't able to serve the way I wanted to serve. You know, and you mentioned something about the fee structures providing access. You know, when I was looking at my peers, first generation wealth creators like myself that may have been the first ones in their families to get good paying jobs and graduate college and all. Nobody I know has half a million dollars to invest as a lump sum, <laughs> but they need help, right? They're buying homes, they're raising children and they can afford planning fees, you know, and the places where I was, it still boggled my mind where I couldn't charge a monthly retainer or quarterly. You know, it was all about, you have to bring in X amount of dollars in AUM per month. I just didn't have it, man. That was just not my network, right? Yeah, that just makes sense to me. And that led for me to open up my own firm too. So I completely understand where you're coming from. So I wanted to ask about some of the initiatives I'm working on. But real quick, before I do that, I wanted to ask you about your other certifications. I see you have Certified Exit Planner and Certified Kingdom Advisors. If you could tell us just a little bit about what those are and what led you to <laughs> add those. Torture yourself in addition to the CFE to have more CEUs and... <laughs> more designations, right? Yeah. This TKA, which is something I mentioned, you know, faith is important to me. Certified kingdom advisor is someone who looks at some more biblical principles of finance and is able to apply those when working with clients. So I do have a lot of clients who are from my church or referred to me from people at my church. And so having those conversations with those where that's important to them is really beneficial. And so I really enjoy those conversations when I can get into the, that level of detail for those who want to talk about it and want to have a financial plan that's based on that as well. So that's just something I wanted to do for myself and serve those who want to be served there. The Certified Exit Planning Advisor, the SEPA, is really for working with business owners. And I think initially when looking at it, I'm looking at the description of it, it sounded like it was really just for business owners looking to exit. But as I got further into understanding and also into the coursework, you begin to realize that, and they say this during the course, that exit planning is just good business planning. You know, it's helping clients think through what the exit's going to look like for them 
then helping them plan for that. And I think a lot of people begin to realize with their business that there's a lot of things that they should be putting in place now, even for those people who might be 10, 20 years away from an exit, you know, just starting to think through what are the things that a potential buyer might want to see in my business. And that's when we started getting into things like systems and just making sure that for yourself planned, you know, what kind of an exit you'd want to have from the business. And also, you know, how do you create the value in the business and make that happen? That's part of that training as well. So yeah, a few different things involved in that, but it's truly there to help business owners think about an exit, even if they're not that close to it, just be, getting to help them think through what that could look like. So I found that to be really beneficial for myself as well, just in my own practice, my own business, just thinking about what would I need to do. It's some of that e-myth concept of creating the systems that you would need and want to have so that whenever you are, that, you know, just that the business can run without, right? And so how do you get your business ready to run without you? And, you know, also when you have the exit, what do you want that to look like for yourself and for your family? So that's some of what that is too, but I think it's all good stuff for anyone to consider for themselves too. Yeah, no, that's nice. I love that. Yeah, and you're right. You know, I think as advisors, we too need to think about that somehow at some point, even if we're solo, right? It's like, <laughs> what's the exit game here? Yeah. That's a great point. So I know you've done a lot of work with the Financial Planning Association, the FPA. You were running the African-American Knowledge Circle, also serving as FPA DEI committee chair. So tell us about some of the work you're doing there. Sure. Yeah, I came into the chair of the FPA Diversity and Inclusion Committee back in 2021. I've been on that committee since 2019. That's my first year on the committee. So yeah, just walking through 19 and 2020 in particular on that committee was interesting. You know, a lot of discussions that occurred around that topic, around FPA. And, you know, I was able to have a front seat for some of that. And then certainly as the chair for the last two and a half years now, just trying to look for some ways and some opportunities to create a more diverse membership amongst FPA and, of course, a more diverse profession at large. And, you know, some of the things that I've wanted to work on as my role as chair, you know, I think there's like three pillars I look at when thinking about diversity and inclusion recruitment, retention, and advancement. And I think about those three areas and, you know, how do we improve in those areas, not only as an organization at the FBA, but also as a profession, you know, people, diverse groups. And I think there's a few initiatives we've worked on. One of the things that's been important to me that I've continued to tout and work on at FBA has been the knowledge circles. And Luce, you mentioned them as well. And we do have knowledge circles for the different ethnic groups out there, uh, along with the LGBTQ community. And even we did start one few years ago for our neurodiverse planners as well. And I think that what I've found with these communities is not only a place for advisors to come together, because I think that was one of the things I really wanted to do was to bring advisors of these different groups together, just form a community, share some ideas, but also for other people to learn. I'll tell you, for me, I'd sit in and listen in on some of the other different knowledge circles, calls. I've learned a lot. I'll tell you, I've learned so much about even you know, estate planning 
in the Asian American community is very different than it is in some other communities. And just being able to sit through one of their calls, listen to the people in that community talk about how they serve that community. I think it's really important that those communities continue to thrive and to continue to gather, have their calls and have other people learn from them. So that's been something that's important is continue to grow those. Something that's recently that we started a couple of years ago, we have this DEI learning series where we're having some calls throughout the year that are based on some of the different heritage months on the calendar, like Black History Month and, and whatnot throughout the year. And we've had some different calls where we've had people, educational calls, people to come and listen to different groups talk about different topics important for them throughout the year, which has been fun to see that as well. So just continuing to look for ways to expand those and looking for other opportunities, helping um, with FPA, they have the chapter format, looking for ways to help other chapters as well, who are trying to recruit more diverse members to their chapters, helping them provide some resources or whatever might be needed to help them too. So really kind of multifaceted approach as, as DEI efforts always are, right? It's never any one thing. It's always going to be multiple things you have to do. But I really tried to take a look at all those different areas of not only just bringing people in on that recruitment side, but I think that retention side is so critical. And we talked about earlier on this podcast with even once people get in, how do you keep people in? Because I think there's so many places along the way that people fall out for different reasons. And just thinking through different efforts for people that hopefully help retain. And that's where I think not only can individuals learn from these different communities, but I think the people in those communities can learn a lot themselves from just what have others done to be successful for people who might look like me? What have they done to be successful? And so that's been helpful to see all that continue to take place. Could you tell me a little bit more about the knowledge circle? How often do you guys meet? Who sets the agenda? Who attends? Like, how do people find out more about them? Sure. Yeah. So those knowledge circles, they're all distinctly different communities. For example, I am one of the hosts at the African-American Knowledge Circle. And, you know, we have a, a leadership team of a few people. And we will gather and we will set our own cadence with the calls. We often choose the topics as well on the calls. We usually will get some feedback from the community as well about things they want to hear, what's important to them, and we'll help set some of that agenda for the cadence of the calls. You know, I'd like to get to a point where we're doing them almost monthly. We're not quite there yet. We're still kind of building this up, but we do right now have several a year, I would say looking to build on it even more. And, you know, we, there are some online forms as well for all these communities where people can share posts within some different online forms. So I think it's a nice way to stay plugged in, to stay connected there as well. But, you know, I think that all of them have maybe a different schedule for how often they meet. And I think it's important that those communities, like I said, they're not just for the people who identify with those communities, those calls are open for whoever wants to join and listen. And I always encourage people as my role as chair, I always encourage people, hey, listen in on these different communities calls, you know, to understand, you know, hey, what are the issues impacting them? What's important to them? And I think for people who are working at different firms who are trying to serve different clients who identify with these communities, you know, just learning from them is a tremendous resource to be able to better serve some of those clients. So that's through the FPA, right? 
Yes, I'm sorry. That, that is through the Financial Planning okay. Association. That's correct. Yes, we'll link to that and how to find uh, knowledge circles uh, for, for those that are interested. Yeah, I love it. And you know, Chris, you mentioned the importance of recruitment, retention, and advancement. A lot of the times I get individuals that ask us, hey, how can I help? And there's always a way, even if you're just one person, I mean, something as simple as signing up to become a mentor, for example, if you've been in the industry for a while and you want to get back, you don't know how to. I mean, one of the ways you can help is with like the retention aspect or the advancement aspect just by signing up with like the FPA, the mentorship program or the CFP boards mentorship program. And you can talk to a mentee for, you know, maybe once a month or something for a certain amount of time. And that could be your way of giving back, you know. So there's so many ways to contribute or getting involved in these knowledge circles, maybe becoming part of the committee. Those applications are open, you know. So there's so many ways to contribute. And I love what you say about sitting in on other knowledge circles that are not like the community that you identify with, because then you get to learn what are the issues that are being brought up by the clients of advisors that are identified with those communities. So, I mean, you can't lose, man just getting more knowledge from all the different people, you know, so thank you for sharing that. Yeah, no, I think it's important. Yeah. Whenever you can talk with people, sometimes if you're not sure, just ask, right. And just find some people, you know, Hey, what are the communities that are important to you that you want to impact and look for some people there and, and just ask them, Hey, what do you think I can do as well? I think you, like you said, if you, if you don't know, like you mentioned Lewis, you can always mentor There's plenty of opportunities and need for that as well. And then I find that sometimes people might be plugged into different organizations in their communities that they know are doing good work. They're looking for volunteers. And so just continuing to talk to different people and just ask the questions, you know, hey, where can I get plugged in here? Where have you seen a need? And, and I always tell people, I feel like everyone has their own unique giftings, their own unique passions. And so sometimes, you know, people can find something that fits there as well. So if there's something that you're passionate about, I mean, some people who are really good at hospitality, different good at hosting events, or some people who are, may have a, have a different gift of just encouraging people to, in different ways. And so, yeah, just look for some ways that might align with your passion that'll just, I think, help to supercharge the different things you're trying to do. But there's certainly plenty of opportunities all around. It's just a matter of somebody you just have to ask. And, and I think for people who aren't sure, Talk to people in these communities. They'll be able to tell you. I think within like these knowledge circles or any other employee resource groups out there in different other large organizations, just ask them, what are some of the needs in those communities and where can I get plugged in and help? And I think they'll be happy to share and happy to connect to you as well. Yeah. And, you know, you also mentioned another great point that the issues being brought up in those knowledge circles is not like all about something that is unique necessarily to those communities. Like you said, you learn about estate planning. Right. And, you know, I've been part of the Latino knowledge circle with the FPA as well. And yeah, there's uh, people come and talk about, hey, how to incorporate tax preparation into your practice. You know, so it's not all about just uh, cultural differences or anything. Right. So there's a lot of actual knowledge there yeah. <laughs> that you can learn. <laughs> to, so we want people to get involved. That's true. It's important. So, no, I, I completely agree. It is. I mean, I think, you know, you'll see some of both. I think you'll see some any cultural points that are that you wouldn't know. And I think there'll be plenty of other just practice management tips that people will learn as well. So I know there's a lot, a lot of work to be done to help improve the diversity in our profession. But if you were just to look out three years from now, how would you define success for making some progress? What would you like to kind of see 
because sometimes it can be overwhelming just thinking about all that needs to change. But, you know, maybe like in three years, kind of what are some incremental steps that we can, that would demonstrate some progress? Yeah. I think that I mentioned that idea, the whole recruitment retention advancement idea, and, and I'll tie that back to these communities. And within the FPA or knowledge circles, other organizations have employee resource groups. I'd love to see an expansion of those because so much good to me comes out of them, not only for, again, the people who identify with those communities being able to come together, but for those on the outside who can also learn from what their needs are. I'll just tell you a story. I remember I've been in the financial services for all those years. I remember the first time I went to the Quad A conference, where most people know Quad A, Association of African-American Financial Advisors. First time I went to a conference with them, and it was eye-opening. Eye-opening, because, you know, in my entire career, I was used to being the only person who looked like me in the room. And when you walk into a room and you see a whole room full of people who look like you in this business, I think you'll hear other people would talk about this conceptually. It can be somewhat life-changing in a way that, in terms of how you feel about the profession and you being in that type of a room. And, you know, I think that once I was there, I realized just the importance of communities like that, not only to talk to them about hearing their challenges, their successes, how they're serving the community and different things. But I think this same concept as we've been talking about, and this will tie a bunch of these pieces together, but from those communities can sprout mentorship, right? Where you can continue with that, retention aspect that I was talking about of helping encourage those who are already in the business, helping provide them resources and contacts of different people who can help them stay in, you know, and I mentioned the advancement side, helping people identify contacts who can help them aspire to even higher positions within different organizations. And so a lot of good comes out of those communities. And so I'd love to see an expansion of those, not just with say like an FPA or some of the other membership organizations, but within different firms themselves. I know a lot of firms aren't large enough to have those types of groups. So if you're not, then I would suggest you pay for the membership for someone, or at least put some money towards the membership of some of the different groups that are already in existence, you know, like a quad a, others that are out there, they're doing it. So I'd love to see everyone plugged into one of those. You know, I think that'd be beneficial for so many reasons to see so many people who can connect with others. And I think within those groups, you can begin to see a lot more good things happen, whether it's helping bring more people into the business, providing the mentorship and the connection to help people stay in the business, you know, but also encouraging others and providing the contacts to help people advance as well. But I think those groups can serve a lot of good. I'd love to see an expansion of organizations who either have them or help provide their employees with resources and help provide, help cover some of the membership fees for those who want to join some of them as well. So I'd love to see that. I know how much good can come from that as we see an expansion of that and just the different places within the industry that will impact is not only them, as I mentioned before, it's other people as well. Like when I go to the Quad A conference and I've been there, you'll see other people who aren't African-Americans who were there who just want to learn. And that's fantastic. Fantastic. And I think other groups, other people should take a cue from that. And there's plenty of opportunities to do that. I'd love to see an expansion of these groups so other people can have that opportunity as well. Yeah, that's such a good tip for businesses. 
I think a lot of businesses might be overwhelmed or not sure what to do to support their employees. A lot of our interns are students. One thing they could do is just give student membership to the FPA and then they can join a knowledge circle. So that's a great actionable tip that we can with our participating firms. I love it. Firm employee benefit. In addition to your 401k, you get <laughs> membership of your choice to, you know, one of these organizations. No, that's great. I love that. And it's a very low cost way of really contributing, right? That's amazing. So Chris, thank you so much. This has been amazing, man. I mean, thank you so much for sharing your trajectory, your expertise and, and the knowledge that you've gained throughout these years and just being exposed yourself as an advisor in the industry and then being involved, being proactive, right, in the DI space. So everyone listening is either a firm owner or financial planner or an aspiring financial planner, right? So I want to wrap up with a question about money and it's just in general, what, what is a favorite personal finance tip or concept or book that you have ever, or piece of financial advice that you've ever received that you'd like to share with us? Yeah, well, I think that there's very few of these that I think are probably new, right? I think you probably hear some recycled tips here because I think so many simple concepts are so important to reinforce. And for me, I'll just add a couple here, you know, from I'm thinking about the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad from Kiyosaki. I mean, I think that's such a timeless book that everyone should read if they haven't. Within that book are just many concepts to take away, but a related concept to that book for me is just the idea of margin, you know, that idea of spending less than you earn. Because I'll just say that I had this model for me. My dad is someone who never made a ton of money, but he always spent less than he earned. He saved well and he invested. Even from when I was a kid, he invested. I started a bank account when I was five years old because my dad encouraged me to do it. So encouraging that next generation, right, to be able to do these things, but also the idea of just spending less than you earn, it sounds so easy, but so few people actually do that. But this idea of bringing margin into different areas of your life, not only your money, most importantly, as it relates to this conversation of making sure you have adequate margin in your own personal finances for different things you're trying to do. I didn't say your time as well. You know, build that margin into your days, build margin into every aspect of your life. But I think financially, you know, just that idea of being relentless about making sure that you're saving less than you earn. And I think a lot of people, when we talk about budgeting and finance, there's so much emphasis on, I'll call it, you know, the, the Starbucks example, right? Hey, just save five bucks a week on, or five bucks a day on Starbucks. You're going to throw it into a Roth IRA. Look where you're going to be in 20 years. And I think instead, people should be focused on some more of the big things, right? About how much are you spending on a house? How much are you spending on a car? And if you begin to start working your finances backwards by kind of first looking at your lifestyle expenses and what you're doing there, then you can begin to realize what you have left to spend on, you know, a car, on a house, those types of things. And I think it's all that relates to the idea of just making sure you have the margin to do the things you want to do, but starts with the reframing of your finances and reframing how you're looking at your finances. That idea of building margin, but also that's my favorite, but also within the Kiyosaki's book, there's so many that I can, I can just start reading a list of stuff there too, just the importance <laughs> of having your money work for you and your cash flow and everything I mentioned about financial literacy too. So those are just a few things there that, you know, stick out to me. So thank you. No, I love it. I love it. Thank you so much. This has been amazing. Yeah. We look forward to seeing you again. It's been a while, right? 2019 was the last time we saw each other in person. 
Hopefully next conference season or yeah. something. <laughs> Seriously. We get to bump Redue. into each other. Redue. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you very much for being here, Chris. For those of you listening, wait for the next week's episode. is the wrap-up episode of the season. We're going to speak with Guy Lawrence from Advisor Business Solutions. We're going to talk about all things VLX, how the internship went for this past summer, and also some new things that we have in stock for upcoming cohorts. So stay tuned. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Diversity in Action podcast. To learn more about the BLX internship program and sign up for our newsletter, please visit our website at blxinternship.org.